Uh, welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program and this is the sixth and final class of this session on the halachic process, a brief history with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. Um, so this is the last class in the in the series. Um, it's been a lot of fun learning and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll cover um, the the two topics that I included for uh, for today and hopefully we'll get a chance to, to learn at some point uh, together in the in the future. So uh, so last week, what we dealt with was the question of how um, the shift happened from the primary um, halachic organizational principle, at least for custom, being geography, to a family custom, or uh, or more um, precisely, um, uh, ethnic or sub-ethnic uh, custom, things like Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Hasidish, Litvish, whatever the case uh, may be. Uh, and we traced uh, halachically and uh, historically how that uh, phenomenon came about after um, the writing of Shulchan Aruch and how that affected um, halachic development going into the, the 20th century. So today I want to touch on, uh, on two questions. Uh, one very briefly, because as I mentioned, um, uh, Rabbi Dr. Hittery dealt with it more extensively in his, uh, in his course as part of the spring semester on uh, Ravuzio. Um, and that's what we'll start with. And that is the question of, um, is this really ideal? Right? We talked about last week how we justify and how we get to the point where the, um, how do we get to the point where history, uh, historically, where we shift from geography to, to ethnicity? Um, and the reason we tried to figure out why that was true halachically was because we know that that's how we experience it, that people continue to identify as Ashkenazim and Svardim and Hasidish and et cetera, and keep their customs. Um, but that's more of a descriptive and, uh, and at some level legal question. Um, but then you have to ask yet one more question, which is, is this the ideal? Um, is it ideal that we're in this situation where um, we maintain these multiplicity of identities? Or is the ideal that um, either one tradition become dominant or that a new tradition entirely uh, be forged such that there is a unified uh, tradition. Um, so this question was really um, quite pressing at the beginning of, uh, of the state. Um, so in the late 40s and the early 50s, um, as the idea that Jewish people from different cultures around the world would come together um, and join in one place and Definitely for, for Zionists and especially religious Zionists, the idea that that was a fulfillment of, a, of or the beginning of a messianic process in which kibbutz galiot, in which the ingathering of the exiles is part of that vision. So um, both philosophers and, and halachists were, were, were facing the question, um, when these people come together, they're bringing, for whatever reasons we talked about last week, their halachic customs and identities. Should we encourage them to keep that? Or should we forge a new Jewish-Israeli um, identity, not just in the, in the social sense and political sense, but in the halachic sense uh, as well? 
And there were essentially three views that emerged, um, but the different views are most, I think, clearly seen through the lens of the first Svardi chief rabbi of the state of Israel, of Rev. Ben-Sion Meir Chai Uziel. Um, I'll share the, the screen. Um, and like I said, I won't spend too much time on it, but I think it's an important question to touch on. Um, and this is what I call the, the melting pot or mosaic question. Um, so um, right, America traditionally viewed itself as a, as a melting pot where the ideal vision of how people coming to America would integrate was um, by becoming American, by at some level giving up at least some of their distinct uh, identities and adopting an American identity. And therefore America was often referred to as the great melting pot. Um, other countries um, like Canada um, ha never had an interest in that. Um, and they pride, prided themselves in being multicultural, right? that to be Canadian was to bring your culture and keep that culture even in Canada um, and create a mosaic, right? A mosaic of different types of, uh, of Canadians. Um, sociologists have suggested all types of different models. Um, in addition to the melting pot or mosaic, if you go on Wikipedia under melting pot, you'll see there's melting pot and then there's mosaic, but there's also the salad bowl imagery, which I'm not exactly sure, it, it, it's supposed to imply a different type of mixing. And then there's the kaleidoscope imagery where the extent to which things are integrated is constantly changing. Sociologists have fascinating things to say about this, but let's keep it simple with this melting pot mosaic um, dichotomy. So um, Ravuziel, was uh, received the following question. I'll just look at uh, my translation here. Um, Ruziel was asked by uh, Rabbi Levitsky, who was the rabbi in Tel Aviv, uh, as follows. He writes that, um, as thank God in our days, the settlement in our holy land has increased, may it continue to increase. Many of our brothers have gathered here from all scattered parts of the exile with unique customs in prayer and the like, each as he received from his parents, that he has been accustomed to his whole life, and each loves his father's customs and won't move from them. I, on Sukkot, I saw regarding the shaking of the lulav that there are many different customs, which with many with that should be with with many divergences. They all pray together in one synagogue, and each follows his custom. And good comes from this as peace reigns. The same is true for differences in prayer and liturgy, tachanon, as much as possible each keeps his own custom. This is a daily occurrence with no breach and there is peace and tranquility. However, I'm afraid that there may be a violation of making factions. What's known in Hebrew as lo go to do. Don't create factions. At least that's how the Gemara understands it. So this rabbi turns to Rebuziel and he says, isn't it beautiful essentially, if I reframe it, isn't it beautiful that the reality in Israel nowadays is the mosaic? All these Jews come, they're Ashkenazim, they're Svardim, they're Hasidish, they're Litvish. And here on Sukkot, you see some people are shaking in this direction first, some people are shaking in that direction first. All types of prayers, when it gets to Kaddish, so some people will say it with the Atzmach Burkhanei Vikarev Mishichai, some people will say it without that phrase. 
you have a few Temanim who will have the long addition um, later on in the Kaddish, and everyone is happy, and everyone keeps their identity, and everyone gets along, and it's beautiful. But Ravuziel is worried, sorry, Marelevitsky um, is worried that as beautiful as it is, maybe it's a violation of the prohibition against factions. So if I have to get into Rabbi Levitsky's head for a minute, I would say as follows. His intuition is that the mosaic is the ideal. That that which we talked about last week, the shift from geography to identity that enables multiple ethnicities or sub-ethnicities and cultures to exist in one shul, that that's an ideal, that's beautiful. In his head, there are two possible responses he can get from Rabuziel as to whether it's proper. One is, you're correct, this is beautiful, and it should be encouraged. We should encourage people to keep their cultures, to keep their halachic customs, and let's celebrate the mosaic. Possibility one. Possibility two is, it's beautiful, you're right, but what can you do? There's a technical halachic prohibition of presenting multiple customs in the same place at the same time because it looks wrong. It creates a, um, it makes it look like the Torah is splintered. And therefore, despite the fact that it's beautiful, we should discontinue it or maybe separate into different shuls or something like that. That's not what happens. Ravuziel responds, not only is it wrong, but it's also terrible. Meaning, not only do I disagree with you halachically, but I disagree with your intuition that the mosaic is an ideal. I like the melting pot. And he writes, among all the virtues that distinguish and separate Israel from all the nations, first and foremost is the wonderful union of this nation in its Torah which is the foundation of its nationality and the secret of its ex eternal existence. Thousands of years have passed since the revelation at Mount Sinai and the Jews have been exiled many times and nation to, from nation to nation, from kingdom to kingdom with many decrees imposed on it and its teachings uh, on it and its teachings to destroy or falsify it, to confuse its letters, disrupt its intentions. Nevertheless, Despite all this, Judaism came out pure and complete in its character and spirit, uni united and unified in its foundation. And all those who tried to harm the unity of the Torah, the Samaritans, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Karaites, and the sects of the disciples of false messiahs were completely lost or exist in a pathetic existence, which will only disappear from the world. This unity emanates, emanates from a faithful source of the Torah of the living God, who is the only one in the world, unique in the heavens and in the earth and all their legions. And therefore he commands his faithful prophet of his house to say, just as he is the only one in the world, so shall your work be special and singular to him. And therefore he says, we've learned from this that it was not permitted to make factions, except in cases such as Ashkenazi and Sephardi communities, which are separate in their customs and distinguished as special divisions. In any case, 
the law turns out to be very well, that all the customs of prayers, performance of mitzvot, and halachic rulings that are publicly performed in one synagogue, they are in general guided by the prohibition against factions. And it is very close to saying that this is a mitzvah that brings about a sin. And it is clear that it is not a mitzvah of the finest kind. We are commanded to maintain and emphasize in all our situations and work for the rock of our salvation to create unity within Israel and Torah. So Ravuziel says to him, listen, right? It's, you're not just wrong halachically. Your intuition is off. You think that the ideal is the mosaic? You're wrong. The ideal is the melting pot. Is there to be unity of practice amongst the Jewish people? And he makes a radical theological claim, which is the reason we want unity of practice is because God is one. And therefore, the Jewish people, by reflecting godliness, must reflect oneness. And therefore, ideally, there should be no divergence of practice whatsoever. At the end, he acknowledges that if there are people who are Svaradin and people who are Ashkenazim and they want to keep their identity, that is legitimate. But what you see from Ravuziel is the opposite inclination of Rabbi Levitsky. Rabbi Levitsky said, it's clear to me that multiple traditions are the ideal, they're beautiful. Maybe there's a technicality that makes it that in a given shul, we should have a unified practice. Rav Uziel comes from the opposite direction and says, maybe if you force me, I'll let Ashkenazim and Svartim keep their own traditions. But that's really a you know, less than ideal situation. The ideal would be unity of practice. And therefore, definitely in a single shul, you should have unified practice. And I think that this back and forth um, highlights the next step in, uh, in our sort of journey that we started last week, right? Again, last week we dealt with the question of how did we get to the point that we maintain these subcultures within halachic practice? But the next question you have to ask is, are we happy that we did? Rabbi Levitsky says, yes, we are, because there's a beauty in a multiplicity of traditions. And Ravuziel said, if I have to tolerate it, I will. But the more we can move towards unity of practice, the better. And therefore, and again, I'm not going to go through the whole history, but one of the things you discover about Ravuziel is that much of his life's practice was devoted to minimizing the differences between Ashkenazi and Svardi Psak. And in fact, as much as he acknowledged that it was legitimate for Ashkenazim and Svardim to keep their practices, whenever possible, he got rid of those differences. And therefore, there were a series of decrees made by the Batei Din, by the religious courts in Yerushalayim in the 50s, um, in which the rabbis got together um, and said, there are certain things where we need unity of practice. Um, and the rabbis voted on whether they should adopt the Ashkenazi or the Sephardi uh, custom. Um, inevitably, they always chose the Ashkenazi custom because the majority of the rabbinate at the time was Ashkenazi. But Rav Uziel, because of his belief that the ideal is to move towards a unified practice, um, consistently was willing to vote in favor of Sephardim giving up their unique halachic practices in favor of the Ashkenazi psak. 
This manifested itself in, uh, in for example, in Yibum, um, leveret marriage, when a person dies childless. Um, the standard Ashkenazi position is that um, the preferred course of action is that the wife of the, um, of the deceased, who is now quasi-married to the brother of the deceased, should perform the quasi-divorce called chalitza to end the union between her uh, and her ex-husband. That's preferable over performing yibum, the leveret marriage, in which she marries her brother-in-law. The Svarti position, traditionally, was to prefer yibum over chalitza, even in cases where that would mean that the husband, let's say the brother-in-law, um, would end up having more, more than one wife. Um, and they believed that the preference for yibum was so great that it even um, overpowered the decree or custom against polygamy uh, that's been prevalent for about a thousand years. Um, and Rav Uziel was willing to give up on the Sephardi uh, tradition in order to maintain unity. Um, Rav Yosef, when he became chief rabbi, um, and really before as well, fought very hard against Rav Uziel um, because he felt that Ashkenazim should keep their identity, Svardim should keep their identity, um, and it was terrible to move towards um, a melting pot world. The mosaic, as it were, was his ideal, and therefore he was offended by the notion that Svardim should have to give up their practice simply for unity with the Ashkenazi rabbinate. Um, and this question of whether the keeping of subcultures is ideal, um, and therefore we should fight for Ashkenazim to keep their customs and Svartim to keep their customs, um, or is at best a begrudging acknowledgement of the reality on the ground, but something that we should actually work against to create an Israeli identity, and maybe an American identity, and a Canadian identity, and a British identity with unified practice, or maybe this is unique to Israel. I'm not going to weigh in on that. Um, that seems to be two visions of what direction halacha should have taken um, as the old traditions based on geography were broken and people moved into these conglomerate areas of Israel and America and the like, where you have some poskim like Ravadi Yosef who celebrate the mosaic and say, it's not just the fact that we're allowed to keep our ethnic cultures, but that's the ideal. And people like Arvuziel who said, no, the ideal is to get to the point where we adopt a singular, uh, a singular practice. Um, I saw um, a few months ago that um, Rav Avram Stav posted that apparently um, Rav Elezer Malamud, who the author of the Penine Halacha series and a leading religious Zionist postsake, um, has slowly but surely in his psaac over the years attempted to diminish the differences between Ashkenazim and Svardim. Uh, and in fact, apparently when someone gives a halacha shir in his yeshiva in Har Bracha and suggests that Ashkenazim and Svardim should maintain different halachic practices, they have like a stucca box. You know, like some people have like a swear box that if you use a, uh, you know, use a swear word, so you have to put some money in the swear box. So he has a, a box that if you suggest that there should be different halachic practice between Ashkenazim and Svardim, you're allowed to suggest that, but you have to like pay the price 
because to acknowledge that it's not ideal. Um, and, uh, and you do see that a lot of religious Zionist thinkers are moving more in that direction. So as much as we talked about last week, that the reality that people experience is that they keep their subcultures of Ashkenazi, Svarti, and the like, that is breaking down to, ex to an extent, at least in certain parts of the halachic community, especially in Israel, where people are moving towards uh, the unified model, um, which would build on what we talked about last week, recognizing that geography is, in the end of the day, supposed to be more powerful uh, than identity. Okay, so that's my overview of, uh, of that topic. Um, like I said, it's a topic in and of itself. This is just the brief, uh, brief overview of it. But I do think it's an important question to deal with um, in light about, of, of what we talked about last week. I'll pause here uh, for questions before I move to, uh, to the second element of what we're going to talk about. Nachum, I see your hands up. Yes. So one question is just trying to understand, having read um, the doctoral dissertation of Rav Benny Lau, he seems to articulate that Rav Avadja wanted to gravitate more to a unified position in, in, in that thesis, unless I misunderstood it. I could have so, since my Hebrew is decent, but not perfect. <laughs> so so what, what, um, what Rabbi Lau notes in his dissertation is that you have mixed language in Rubavadya, that Ruvadya, his main goal seemed to have been to return the pride to the Sardi community. Um, in order to do that, he did a few things, right? He emphasized Sardi unity um, by eliminating differences between quote unquote Sardi communities, right? Um, Right, so therefore he fought against the right, so to speak, of the Iraqi community or the um, to follow the Beni Shai, right, or the Moroccan community to follow uh, the Chida. Um, um, so on the one hand, he argued for unity within the Sephardi camp, but on the other hand, he mostly argued for the legitimacy of diversity between Ashkenaz and Sephardi. Right now, sometimes he overcompensates and says, I'm willing to let Ashkenazim do their practice, even though they're really wrong, right? But I'm willing to tolerate that. But it's not clear whether that's because he wants a unified practice or he's overcompensating to defend against the Ashkenazi hegemony to defend Sephardi practice, right? An argument along the lines of, really, you should be following us also, but I'm willing to let you do your own thing if you leave us alone, right? So unclear. Um, so you are correct that that Ravadi has a little bit of uh, multiple things going on. He has a um, a collapsing of Svardi identities into a pan Svardi identity. Sometimes he talks about Jewish unity, but usually as a weapon against the imposition of Ashkenazi hegemony. More often, he collapses Svardi identity, Svardi identities into one Svardi identity but allows and maybe even celebrates the possibility of Ashkenazim versus Svartim. So you're right, there is a bit of an ambiguity in, in Rubavadia in that sense. Um, um, right, Benny Lau do, devotes, it's I think about half the book, right, to this question, because at least two sections 
um, touch on this question in different ways. Uh, but you're correct, right? It's a little bit more complicated um, than uh, than we can get into here. But there is a little bit of both in uh, in Rebuvadia. Um, part of it also has to do with his opposition to, to halachic rulings based on Kabbalah, which um, de facto means that he often collapses different subcultures amongst the Svaradim because he doesn't like those cultures that follow the Kabbalistic influences in Psak, right? So there, there is a little bit of overlap of different things that are going on in his, in his methodology, um, but you're correct, right? Rebavagia deserves much greater analysis, hence, hence, hence Benny Lau's excellent dissertation. What about the notion of elu ve'elu devel kim chayim? That doesn't seem to be, you know, a bedievet position. That seems to um, be a position of admiration. How does that figure? So out? you're you're right, but and I think maybe Evie can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I saw in the description that one of Dr. Levins's classes is on this point. I think. Okay. I believe. Uh, yeah, I think I think it touches on that. Correct. So, okay, so I, I'll, I'll I think be that's true, and I'll, and I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm not hundred okay, percent sure, but I think so. so. So I'm pretty sure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna punt on it. I, I will just note that you're right. The, the Gemara celebrates it, but the question of whether that actually implies a fundamental pluralism of practice or um, only recognizes the epistemic limitations of human beings and therefore celebrates the attempt to find truth and follow what you think is truth, but not, doesn't actually celebrate the possibility of multiple truths, right? That's one of the, a very complex question um, within that. And, and I'm 90% sure that that's yes, what Dr. Yes. Levin is supposed to talk about. Okay, good. So I'm just gonna leave it then and, and leave it for him for uh, for this series. Um, okay, good. I'm glad I checked the description. I haven't caught up on all this year yet, but I'm gonna cut the description so I know what else is being discussed. Okay, fine. Second half, and this is very much related to what we did last week as well, is the following. Half of the reason that we've maintained our halachic practice um, based on subculture is based on what we said last week, is that we have traded in geography for culture, okay? And we talked about that and how we got there again. We talked about that last week, but there is another mechanism that gets us to the modern moment. And that is the question of how do you define maradatra? Now, what is maradatra? So last week we talked about practice, minhag, but there's another halachic mechanism that is traditionally geographically based. And that is the notion of literally the master of the place, maradatra or Maybe you've heard it in the Ashkenazi, which is Mardasra, um, which is the term that people colloquially often use for their shul rabbi. But what it literally means is the, the master of the place, because there used to be an idea of a, uh, a local rabbinic authority upon, based on whose authority the community ruled and practiced. And this is something that the Gemara celebrates. It downright celebrates. So the Mishnah and Shabbat and Koflamid tells you, tells us that there was a dispute between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva as to whether the preparatory stages for a Brit Milah overrode Shabbat. Everyone agrees that a Brit Milah performed at the right time on day eight, 
override Shabbat because the actual performance of the Brit Milah, which draws blood, is a violation of Milacha. It's a violation of Shabbat. But the Torah tells us that nevertheless, it can be performed on Shabbat. But Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Kiva disputed what to do if you forgot to make a knife or sharpen a knife or carry the knife for the Brit Milah. Do the preparatory stages of the Brit Milah, do they override Shabbat or not? Rabbi Eliezer tells us, if you forgot to bring the knife before Shabbat, so bring it openly in public on Shabbat and everyone will understand you're doing it for the mitzvah and that's fine. Rabbi Akiva says no. Anything that could have been done before Shabbat does not override Shabbat. Only those things that could not have been done on Shabbat override Shabbat. Now, Rabbi Eliezer's position becomes the minority position and is rejected. However, despite the fact that it's not the accepted position, the Gemara tells the following story. Tanar Rabbanan, bimkomosha Rabbi Eliezer, hayu kortin eitzim, lasot pechamin, lasot parasel b'shabbat, in Eliezer's place, they would cut wood to make a fire, to sharpen and purify the metal, to make a knife for the Brit Milan on Shabbat. Meaning they celebrated his position. They went all out and they would do anything they needed to do for a Brit Milan on Shabbat. Similarly, it says that Bil Komosha Rabbiosa Haglili, Ochlin Basar Rabbi Yossi Aglili had another minority position, that you were allowed to eat chicken, poultry, and milk. Again, minority position, but still, in his place, they kept this. And the Gemara seems to have no problem with it at all, and downright celebrate it. And later on in the Gemara, the Gemara even talks about how the people in these cities would live long lives, in the merit of them having to have listened to their local rabbi. So the Gemara takes it as a given that the standard halachic model of authority is your local rabbi, and that following his position, even when it's a minority position, is an ideal. Touching on, on Nahum's question, right? That this does seem to celebrate multiplicity of positions. Um, and it does seem to. In this case, it seems to celebrate. What's the halachic rationale for this? So in a very surprising comment, the Ridva writes um, that the pasuk that normally we understand as granting authority to the high court in Yerushalayim, the Beit Din Hagadol, lo tasur min adavar you should not veer from that which the high court says left or right, the Ridva, writing in the 13th century, argues that that authority, that power actually inheres in everyone's personal local rabbi. And that's why it's legitimate to celebrate the notion that you follow your local rabbi, because they are invested with the power of Lotasur, of God's command that you listen to the halachic, pra pra uh, halachic process 
and the authorities that represent it. Okay, great. That worked in the world that we talked about last week, 500 years ago, when people still related to their city, their geographic area, as the central locus of the way they defined their halachic practice. But as we talked about with custom, that broke down um, over the last 500 years. So what about this related notion of Maradatra? This related notion that your primary halachic authority is <coughs> your local rabbi. How has that model fared as the world globalized and people moved away from their original location and communication became such that you can easily talk to a rabbi in another city, in another country, across the world. You can email, you can call, you can WhatsApp, you can Facebook, you can whatever you want to do, but it's easy to contact your chosen halachic authority, whoever that may be, wherever that person lives. So what do we do? So um, Rabbi Aaron Kirschenbaum, in, in, a, in an article a while ago already in tradition, highlights the extent to which the traditional model of authority based on locality has faded. And he writes, first and foremost, the alienation of the masses of our people from halacha has diminished the locality over which the local rabbi is master from the autonomous judicial community, kahal of the Middle Ages, to the particular Orthodox synagogue from which he draws his salary. He said, first of all, most Jews in an area aren't necessarily keeping halacha. And therefore, even were every halacha-keeping Jew in an area to accept a particular posseg, that authority is much more, is much diminished from a time in which the entire community cared what halacha said. Point two, but even for the halachic observant Jew, the telephone and automobile have rendered city a meaningless term and locality, which is now limited to the individual synagogue, may paradoxically also refer to a huge geographic expanse. In the British Empire and the state of Israel, the maintenance of a chief rabbinate has decreased significantly the role of the traditional maradatra. Indeed, the chief rabbis themselves are often viewed as the maradatra of the entire country. A challenged proposition, but definitely one that was offered. Um, also, and now he adds a third and, uh, a third and fourth point that weakens the notion of local rabbinates, and that is specialization has overtaken the modern rabbinate. So that rabbi, rabbinical judge, teacher, and communal leader are seldom incorporated one man, right? So the modern world, because of communication, because of globalization, and because of specialization, which makes it that your local rabbi may be an expert in kashrut, but not in Erevin, has led to um, outsourcing questions of Erevin, which takes specialties, or the creation of a mikvah, which takes uh, right, which has been become a specialty. So all these factors have begun to chip away at the notion that the classic model should be geographic. And then he adds the final factor. Finally, the emergence of Rosh Yeshiva's halachic decisors 
whose authority transcends geographic boundaries, and even more so the walls of the individual yeshiva, has contributed much to the near demise of the traditional Maradatra. Not only do their disciples turn to them, not only do the laity turn to them, but the communal rabbi, the local Maradatra himself, as a former, for, as a former Talmud, as a former student, also turns to them for psaac and guidance. Indeed, the telephone has done much to undo the role and stature of the old-time Maradatra. It would therefore appear that the Maradatra, in the traditional sense, survives today chiefly in small communities or in communities far removed from the main centers of contemporary Jews, Judaism, i.e. in Israel or in urban America. It is hazardous to predict the future of the Maradatra. Nevertheless, it would appear that there are no significant factors on the horizon in contemporary Jewish life that could stop the historical, sociological, and techn technological processes that are bringing this concept to the vanishing point. So that's a pretty strong statement. And I think, honestly, mostly correct. Right? As we talked about last week, the notion of maintaining a geographic model is hard to justify um, when the world is shaken up. Um, and once you've accepted a model of a, of a locus of identity and culture as more powerful, you would assume that Maradatra would go the same way. But the truth is that we need to ask two questions about Maradatra. So Rabbi Kirschenbaum has, I think, compellingly argued that there's good reason to believe that the traditional idea of a geographic power has almost been eliminated. But there's a second half of that question, and that is, has it been reconstituted? Meaning, maybe the geographic idea of Mardatra has died, mostly, not entirely, but mostly, or at least as a binding category. But have we reconstituted that notion just like we did with Minhag along identity lines? Meaning, could we argue that you're no longer bound by your local rabbi, but you are bound to the poseg that you choose? Because you choose your poseg based on hashkafa, right? Based on worldview. If you're Haredi Litvish, so then Reb Chaim Kanievsky is who you're going to listen to. If you are, um, if you are Hasidish, so your Rebbe is who you're going to listen to. If you're modern Orthodox, then you have, right, your own teachers, whoever they may be, right? And the way that you will view halachic authority and gadolness will be different, admittedly. Um, but is that legitimate? Can you reconstitute the idea of a Mardatra not based on geography, but based on identity like we did with custom? So I think you can, but here's how it works. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this a lot outside to make sure we cover it, but it's all here and you can look at it. The first move towards redefining Mardatra happened in the Rajba. So let's, uh, let's highlight what we got to do. The original model of Mardatra was very simple. The rabbi was local and the community was local, right? 
the rabbi was the authority for the community that lived where he was. The Rajba was asked, can you break half of that equation? So he said, there were places already in his time where entire cities had decided that instead of following just their local rabbi, they were going to adopt the positions of the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi, the 10th century authority, or the Rambam, right? Maimonides, right, the great 12th century authority. So he was asked, is that legitimate? Is it legitimate for these cities to make the Rambam and the Rif as it were their Mara Da'atra, the local halachic authority? So the Rajva, I want to be clear, is asking half of the modern question. The people asking are communities, are cities. So the community is still geographic. But the first question that would break down the traditional notion of Mardatra is, can a geographic community choose a non-geographically located halachic authority? And even more so, a dead non-local halachic authority. So again, the community who will accept the authority is geographic, not ethnic or cultural, it's geographic. But the halachic authority is not. The halachic authority is some posseg that they identify with. So the Rajva says, yes, you can. And he invokes the example of Rabbi Eliezer, right, who we already saw. Everyone celebrated the fact that the people in Rabbi Eliezer's town followed Rabbi Eliezer. And then he says, Following the model of Mar Da'atra, anybody who would accept following one halachic authority, like those people who've accepted to follow the riff, or or those who follow the Rambam, so they've made the Rambam and the Rift their authority. Now he does qualify it and he says, unless their local authority tells them specifically, I disagree. Because he says, in that case, you can mostly replace the Maradatra with a virtual, even dead, halachic authority. But at the end of the day, they're not really your authority. So if your local personal posseg wants to rule differently, they can. But what the Rajba opens up as the possibility is that the geography can be broken, at least for the rabbi. The community, again, that may accept the rabbi is still geographic, but the rabbi is no longer local or even alive. And this model is echoed in many poskim later on. So in the Chut Chaim, ba, Shud Chaim Bad, he says that this model explains why people accepted Shulchan Aruch, 
they made Rabbi Yosef Karo, even if he was dead, the rabbi of all Svardi lands. Um, and the Ashkenazim followed the Rama, right? And basically the same thing that the Rajba um, did for the Rambam the Rif, so later on happened for Shulchan Aruch and Rama. But then you have to ask the next question, which is, okay, the Rajba says that Mardatra, we can break down the notion that the rabbi has to be local, but the community doesn't have to be local. Sorry, does have to be local, has to be geographic. Can you flip it? Can you say that not only does the rabbi who holds the power of the Mardatra no longer has to be local, but that the community who accepts a rabbi no longer has to be a geographic com community, but rather can be a ethnic community or a community based on joint philosophy, right? So Hasidim following their Rebbe, modern Orthodox people following, I don't know, the their teacher who they identify with, who shares their values, right? Um, a woman deciding that she wants to ask Nida questions only to her Yoetzet Halacha, right? Because she believes that women should be involved in the process and therefore she identifies with asking that to her Yoetzet, whatever the case may be, right? Can we now say that the group of people who decide they identify as Satmar Hasidim can follow their Rebbe, even if I break the geographic na uh, nature of the community and not just the rabbi? So my late teacher of Aaron Lichtenstein argued, yeah, meaning once the Rajba said that Mara Deatra is the rabbi doesn't have to be local, but you can choose him because you identify the rabbi, then the community doesn't have to be local either. Because that means you can define communities just like we did last week based on identity. So here I have two quotes, one from um, Rabbi Helfgott, who is, who is expanding on uh, Rav Luchensin's position, and then the original quote from, uh, from Rav Luchensin. So let's, let's look quickly here at 10 and 11. Rehelf got rights. This ruling of Rajba moves the concept beyond the limitations of specific time and place and makes the ideological and halachic affiliation with a particular authority's rulings at the center of the mandate. One can plausibly extend this concept beyond the boundaries of any reference to geographic area as well. Once one claims that the concept of following the view of an individual scholar extends beyond his death or his actual place of domicile, the road is clear to an expansive reading of this notion. Thus, a Belzer Hasid who lives in Cape Town, South Africa, or a transplanted Washington Heights Yeka who was a member of Kilata Dat Yishirun and was now living in San Jose, could continue to follow the practices and psakim that they felt loyalty to in their day-to-day -day life. And Rav Luchenstein in Source 11, in his article, Legitimization of Modernity, Classical and Contemporary, uh, expands on this. The definition of the relevant community, however, is murky. The Gemara speaks of locale, but it seems that geography should be the sole determinant. Would an enclave of Judean emigres in Galilee be permitted to eat chicken fried in butter? Would only residents of 12th century Egypt 
be entitled to rely upon the Rambam's minority kulo, it seems far more likely that other factors, ethnic identity, or above all, spiritual and ideological fealty should carry no less weight. I believe that this is clearly suggested by the Rajma. In this vein, if they've been accustomed to act consistently in accordance with the halachot of Rabbi Fasizal, or in places in which they've been accustomed to act consistently on the basis of the Codex of the Rambam, they have in effect established these gedolim as their Rebbe. Physical proximity is obviously not intended here. What is envisioned is evidently rather a principled and consistent attachment. Its basis is left open. The places cited could have come to be accustomed to doing all their actions in accordance with the dicta of the Rif or the Rambam as a result of either accident or choice. The point is, however, that spiritual commitment rather than geographic contiguity is the determinant factor. A Sephardi congregation in Warsaw could still be bound by the rulings of the Rishon LeZion. Would a Ger Chassid cease to be part of the Beth Israel's community just because he moved to Paris? The implications for a contemporary Orthodox Jew, Jew's legitimization of his response to modernity are self-evident. And here, Rav Lichlensin points out why this is important in the modern world. Because it's not just true in halacha, it's true in hashkafa, it's true in worldview, right? Do you embrace Zionism, modernity, or reject them? He said, were there no genuine gadol who had subscribed to the core halachic positions of what is roughly denominated modern orthodoxy, ordinary rabbis and laymen would be hard put to cling to them. In the absence of an imprimatur from any shofet shebiamecha whatsoever, from a great judge in your generation, it would be difficult, in, if not impossible, to justify adoptions of norms and values in defiance of a wall-to-wall phalanx of Gedolei Israel. Such, such action would be simply regarded as error, whether Bidvar Mishnah or Bishikal Hadat. Once contemporary authority no doubt bases himself largely, largely and perhaps selectively upon classical predecessors. But the ordinary person must base himself upon a Shofet Shabi Amecha. Um, and then he goes on, um, right? And for him, the reason that he wants to say this is even if we limit our purview to the confines of our own bailiwick, it is self-evident that over the span of half a century, the imposing presence of our coll collective Rav Mufaktal was sufficient to refute this perception. And obviously he means Rabbi Soloveitchik. And so Rav Luchlensin argues that not only can we break the geographic hold on halachic authority and even hashkafic authority, we should, we should redefine our communities based not just on Ashkenazi or Sephardi, but ideological commitments and thereby create legitimate, legitimizing halachic authorities by attaching to those people whose vision we share about what halacha should be. So I'll take questions in just a second. What this tells you is that what's true of custom, as we talked last week, is true of the other way of getting at the exact same point, right? Is that part of the reason that, that Shulchan Aruch got accepted and Ramah was accepted was because that was the custom. The other half was a move towards redefining Maradatra as a local authority for a local place to being an ideological community accepting the ideological authority that they base themselves on.
And therefore, while Rabbi Kirschenbaum highlights the way in which Moradatra as a geographic category broke down, Rabbi Helfgan of Lichtenstein reconstituted along identity lines or ideological lines. And I think this is the last point we really have to make in sort of our journey to the modern moment. Because it's not just true that we have reinterpreted Ashkenaziness or Svartiness as an identity rather than as a geography. But globalization and the ability of communication and people's connections with their teachers rather than their local rabbis have um, suggested that another axis, another way that we view modern halacha is on ideological grounds and the communities that we form and the halachic authorities we relate to and give credence to reconstitute the idea of community for halacha and philosophical purposes along identity lines, which in the case of some customs may be about Ashkenazi Svarni, but in case of other things may be along ideological lines like do you accept or reject modernity? Do you accept or reject the notion that Zionism is a positive or negative um, part of the modern world? And I think that all of these together bring us really to the modern moment, right? This move away from geography to identity, the reconstituting of community along ideological lines has really, plus the question that we talked about in the first half of today's year, the question of whether we really want to remain with ethnic identities or we want to start moving towards unified identities like Jew, Israeli, or something like that. And the question of how to balance all those factors, I think will describe the complexity of the modern moment, right? And so much of the modern moment and modern halacha is fights over these questions, right? People who say the local rabbi should have the right to paskin for his community are at some level rejecting the notion that geography is, um, is no longer important. The people who no longer turn to their rabbi in, of their shul, but turn to their teacher who they learned with when they were in Israel 20 years ago, right? They are implicitly accepting an identity, an ideological notion of community rather than a halachic one, uh, rather than a geographic one, rather. The people who start to break down the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi are celebrating the kibbutz galiot, as it were, and saying that holding on to ethnic identities is holding us back from creating an ideal world in which everyone follows a unified practice, right? And so many, I think, of the disputes and the arguments over halacha are because we're, we as a community are still working out the extent to which we're still functioning in geographic models. Are we functioning in ethnic models, ideological models? What happens when there's a conflict between them? Are we fully comfortable in one model or are we trying to create hybrids? But so much of the halachic argumentation and the disputes in our communities are, I think, because as we've talked about in the last two weeks, so much has changed in the last 500 years. And what used to be simple, that communities and their authorities were all geographic, has totally broken down and be called into question 
And what people are struggling with is reconstituting what community means when so much of halakhic history was working on a different par- paradigm that we have. So I hope that over the last six weeks, we've painted a picture of how we got to the 21st century. And I, what I think are the major challenges in terms of defining what it means to have a halakhic community and what that means for who has authority and who grants them that authority. Is it their geography? Is it their identity? Is it their ideology? Those questions I think are quintessentially modern, but have been, have we've gotten to the point that we are because slowly but surely the classic models have been broken down over 500 years of galuyot, expulsions, printing presses, increased communication, increased publication, all of which forced us to ask what community really is and what that's going to mean for halachic authority. And really the challenge now that Postgame are dealing with um, is how do we want to proceed? Um, and honestly, there are different voices. There are communities that are still very geographic. There are communities that are very into their identity, but are less likely to be based on ideology, right? They're very strong Svarti, but it's not about whether they're you know, Zionist or anti-Zionist Svarti, they're just Svarti. And then there are people who only turn to postcam that they ideologically agree with, right? And you see that this breakdown of traditional models and the reconstituting both for custom and for halachic authority really, I think, describes the modern moment. And I hope over the last six weeks, we've, uh, as we've taken it, we've done a journey here of two, two and a half, three and a half thousand years. Um, we've at least gotten a snapshot of how we got from the Torah to the complex situation of how we view halacha and community and halachic authority um, in the extremely globalized, ever more connected world of the of the 21st century. So with that, um, I thank everyone for uh, for a fun six weeks, and I will turn to the questions that I have here. Um, okay, one question. So you can have in one shul different practices based on who you consult as your posseg. Um, yes, if you think that community should be continue to defi- be defined culturally um, or ideologically, so then yes, um, the fact that you're in one shul shouldn't matter. It should matter what community you've chosen to identify with. Um, if you think that this is all a mistake, that we should go back to the geographic model and this breakdown of the geographic model over the last 500 years was, uh, was a problem, then no, every shul should have their own practice um, and you know, unified practice. Um, is there a difference between private and public spaces? And yes, that is, unfortunately, we can't get into that too much. It is possible that you could say that in principle, um, people should be allowed to hold their um, individual cultural identities, but maybe a particular shul needs to have unified practice um, because maybe in a single place, there is... um, Right, there's something particularly egregious halachically of having multiple practices in one place. And I did give you here in source 16 that Rahel Scott um, does take that direction. That even though he thinks that in general it's legitimate to reconstitute halachic authority and practice based on identity and ideology, um, he does think that maybe in a public space, 
In one shul, you should have unified practice. And that's what he writes here. It would seem, however, that public manifestations of a practice that fly in the face of the accepted custom of a specific town or in our contemporary context, synagogues would not be sanctions. Such actions would contradict the principles outlined in the fourth chapter of Psachim that require one who moves to a new locale to accept the public practice of the community that one is now residing in, especially when public actions to the contrary would cause discord and strife. So there might be technical reasons why at least in one shul, in one place, at one time, you might want unified practice, even if fun fundamentally you, you buy the notion that geography is no longer as important for halachic practice and authority as ideology and, uh, and identity. Um, yeah, let me, that's a good point. Let me unshare the screen. That will help me. Okay, good. Um, other questions? Nahum, yes, you have a question. Go. One question, one anecdote. So I'll tell you the anecdote first since it's at the end, right? Okay. Um, so coming from the Hasidic background that I do, my tradition has been not to eat in the sukkah on Shemini Atzeres, right? Notwithstanding the Gemara. I have a Litvak father-in-law. So when he retired and came to our house, I had to decide whether Kibud of, you know, or my family minhag is more important. Talk about ideology. So I didn't really know what to do. So this is a little bit of a show off. So I call a Tarasalvechik Tversky and I said, when your father ate in your house in the sukkah, what did your husband do? And she said, he went out to the sukkah and ate with his father-in-law. So you see, things vary. My, my question, which is a, um, which is a bold one, at what point, because of this question of, let's call it ideology, or what I call sometimes what resonates with you spiritually, can you arrogate through process and through learning the decision for yourself? In other words, your conclusion, even including Rev Lichtenstein, is really in the end, you still need to turn you know, to some sort of ideologue who's going to respond. I'm not talking about a, a technical question of medical practice where you need an expertise. <clears throat> I'm talking about a more ideological type of response, especially in light of the fact, as you said, there's so much mass communication. I turn again to Rabbi Benny Lau, you know, who authored a whole article about the internet, you know, where people in very popular type questions can go to the internet and see, you know, many answers for themselves from many leading authorities. And so, now that's called shopping, um, but at what point is the flip correct? That there are certain things ideologically as you gravitated, I'm not saying you were all the way there, you know, that you ideologically resonate with. So uh, I'll, 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 say, I'll, I'll say this. When I, uh, when I first started teaching halachic process, so my first year of teaching halachic process, I gave um, a series of shirim on 
what factors do halachic authorities take into account when they decide halacha? That was year one. The second year I, I was teaching halachic process, I tried to figure out what I could do that would build on that. So the second year I called the role of the laity in the halachic process, where I focus on the opposite question, which is, okay, that's what halachic authorities do, but how much right do non-halachic authorities have to make their own decisions or more precisely, at what point can you make yourself a halachic authority and for what purposes, at least for yourself? Um, and that was, that took me another year. So, so I've thought about the question a lot. Um, I tend to be pretty liberal on it, um, but the answer is long because it took me a year to develop my thoughts on it. <laughs> I'm a year of, you know, an hour and a quarter shurim every week in the, when I was in the Kolel and Gush where I, you know, I just sat down and said, okay, I need to answer this question for myself. Um, so the answer is, I think you're right. Um, that in many cases, you can be your own authority. And I know that's a controversial statement, though I'm willing to put my name behind it. Um, but the exact parameters of that, I cannot explain briefly. Um, I'm happy to But I you. will say that it's a combination <laughs> of, of um, recognizing the complexity of the question and how much expertise you have, one. Two is um, dealing with the question that is debated in post skin. Um, even if someone is surely qualified as a post-sake, um, does bias make it that sometimes it's worth turning to an outsider, not necessarily even greater than you, just someone not you for an outside opinion where it might be surprising, but it is a very large dispute amongst post skim. The clear majority of post skim think that bias is not a problem. You are allowed to post skim for yourself, though there are outliers, at least in certain types of questions. Um, so the, um, but basically there are three factors to it, right? Which is how complex is the question? How much of an expert are you? And how much um, should the fact that you're posting for yourself um, affect whether you wanna to go to an outsider to avoid bias? Um, I happen to think that in all three of those, there's a lot of latitude um, and therefore I'm pretty comfortable with people when they are qualified, posting for themselves. Um, but that obviously leaves a lot of room because we have to answer all the other questions. Um, and there's all types of complexities there as well, because you know, you could also say that look, a rab a, a posseg should determine the theoretical halacha, but it should be left to the individual to determine whether their situation fits that. Right. So let's say a posseg could say, if you feel really stressed, then there's room because of shat hatrak to be lenient. But the but maybe the right thing is to then say, but I'm gonna leave it in your hands to figure out whether you think it reaches that level, right? So there's all types of hybrids that come up because every halachic question has multiple factors, the halachic statement and the assessment of reality and a pure sock needs to meld them. And it could be that you turn to a posseg for advice on the, the theory, but you maintain your own right um, to weigh in on the reality. So to throw out why this might be important, though it's controversial, right? Rabbis who will say, I think this usually comes up in women's issues. This shouldn't happen because I think the women are doing it for the wrong reasons. <clears throat> what they're essentially saying is this would be permitted if they were doing it for the right reasons. 
statement one. <laughs> statement two is I don't think they are, right? But it might be very legitimate to someone to say, I agree with you, right? A woman might say, I agree with you. If I was doing it for the wrong reason, I shouldn't do it. But I don't think you know my inner world, right? And therefore, in practice, I disagree with your assessment, right? I think that's a very fair, right, critique, right? So it could be that you think postgame can weigh in the halacha, but you have the right to weigh in on the relevant reality on the ground, which obviously determines how the halacha comes out, right? Um, if so you great. want, you can, you. you can email me afterwards and I can, I can send you some source sheets where I dealt with this question. I hope one day I can write up my thoughts on it. But again, it was a year worth of material, so it'll take me time. Um, more new. Okay, um, I think I'll pause here just for a second. I see that, Dan, you have a, a question, but... Um, for Evie, I'm going to first, before anyone else runs out, I wanna thank Evie for all her help for this uh, during the last six times. And uh, Evie, why don't you make your announcements and then I'll, I'll answer as many questions as you want, but why don't you make the announcements now so that everyone okay, wants to are leave. You, are you them. sure you don't want Dan to uh, ask his question first? Um, it's up to you when you wanna make the, the announcements. But, That's okay, um, because I, I have to stay until the end anyway. So so okay, we can, fine, we can Dan, do the questions, Dan, but thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Dan, what's your, uh, what's your question? Ahead. Thank you. Um, I was thinking about something we said at the beginning of this session. Um, <laughs> why, it's, why it's relevant, for, I'll, I'll say in a second, but I was the, the source about Rabbi Levitsky, how he, how he said that, um, I, I actually, my, my, my response, my, the way I read it was a little different. And I don't even know if Rabbi Uzziah, who was responding to it, read it the way I read it. But um, he was the point the points um the point that was made was that that um he's Rabovitsky sees as an ideal um the multiplicity of practice um but i actually i actually thought it wasn't really clear what he was saying because he was saying on one hand he, he he's he's not sure what, what to believe and I, the way i thought uh, and i'll say again why, why this is relevant in a second um where i thought he he read it was that um, not necessarily that it was an ideal, but that um, given that that these that that the people with different views, isn't it like in your, isn't it so nice that that they can get along even though they're not they're not doing this ideal, uh, it, it, as a possibility of, of reading it. The reason I, I, I wanted to say that is because um, I um, one one thing that 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 has to be underscored is. Is that um, everyone would agree? Even even and, and and there's been so many views we've discussed here. It's really been thought provoking. But um, one one thing that that has to be underscored is is that everyone would agree that I mean it's so obvious in a way. It's basic, but that that Jew, Jews getting along is 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 fundamental. Everyone agrees that's 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 positive. Um, the reason I'm saying that is because. Um, um, the when uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, the the idea that that um, the Revolutsky prevents I don't I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember exactly what he said. But um, he uh, the um, hold on, I can pull it up. I can pull it up again. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I I stutter so much. <laughs> no problem. I'll just pull up the sheet. I'll pull up the source for you. Wait, here we go. Uh, where are we? Here we go. Yeah. If this helps you. 
Um, well, that was Dorabuzia. What was the, what's his original set? Um, what Rogovetsky said. I always. Um, if you want the original in the Hebrew, it's. No, in English, English is better. Oh, there, there was no. It wasn't. Oh, okay. No, no, I don't have his. I have I have it as formulated by Rabuzio. I don't know what the original oh. letter said. Oh, so I, I guess I was just taking. I, I some then my 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 position might be even more flawed because I was basically on what, on what you said, but um, um. The the idea that that. I I want to just present to the four. We talked about um, um, what's it called. Uh, Shaving Panim Torah, but there's another quote is also is that like you're saying, it's it's just a beautiful thing that 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 these Jews are getting along and and, and together. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I thought it was clear in my head. I I, I sorry for taking your time. Um, I, no, I'm not sure. no, I, no, so I let, let me let me put it let me let me, let me put it this way, the. There's, there's actually, I, I wrote an article about this a while ago, based on a, an article by Ray Clapper, um, where the, the prohibition that, that is part of that conversation of low to go to do of not creating factions, um, there seems to be a fundamental dispute between Rambam and Rashi, um, whether the reason that it's wrong to have factions is the Rambam says because people will fight, right? It'll leave to Machloke. And Rashi says the problem is that the Torah will look like two Torah. Shelo yeh Torah kishtei Torah. Interestingly, at some level, I don't just think that there are two ways of saying the same thing. I think they're actually opposites um, for the following reason. Let's say that I decide to have a, uh, a Seder with my next door neighbor, okay? And I say, in my house growing up, this is how we did the Seder. And my next door neighbor says, in his house, when he was growing up, this is how he did the Seder, right? We won't fight because we acknowledge that we had different histories, right? We might try to figure out what we're supposed to do at our Seder, but we won't get into a fight of, no, you didn't do that in your house, right? Because we admit that we have two different pasts. But if my sister and I get together for a Seder and argue about what we did growing up, right? We will fight because we're claiming the same tradition, but we're arguing about what that was. Mm. So bringing it over here at some level, if you say the reason not to have factions is because you're gonna fight, then if in the end of the day, people have different practices, but they won't fight, then great. But if you think the problem is that the Torah will look like two Torah, fighting is actually better than not fighting. Because if you don't fight, then you're admitting that there are two Torah. But if you fight, then what you're implying is that there really is one Torah, we're arguing about what it is, right? So as much as we like peace, the value of avoiding factionalism might actually limit the extent to which we like peace, right? It might actually be that we would rather people fight and come to a single practice than let everybody go their own way because peacefully letting everyone go their own way is acknowledging that the Torah has sub-traditions, right? Whereas 
fighting, having a spirited fight about what the shul should do, at the very least, it may be very bad in terms of fighting, but it's good in terms of the underlying message, which is we should share a tradition. We're just trying to figure out what that should look like, right? Or what that is. So I think it's actually more than that. Yes, everybody will agree that there's peace, but I'm not sure everybody would agree that that's the ultimate value. And they might even think it's worth fighting if the result is gonna be uniformity. Um, and if there's not gonna be uniformity, fighting still might be better than becoming okay with Judaism splintering into peaceful but varied traditions. So I think that's part of what lies behind it is that we all want peace, but there might be an implied danger in peace, right? Because it might imply a fundamental pluralism, which people might not be comfortable with. Um, and I tend to think Rabuziel is actually on that place, where as much as he wants people to get along, he would rather them fight and come to a single conclusion than give up on the vision of unity. So, so well, you know, so it really clarifies a lot. What? It really clarifies a lot. Thank you. It really helps me. Yeah, no, I, I saw where you were going, but like, this is one of the things that took me a while to put my finger on it. But once you put your finger on it, you realize that at some level, fighting has a, has a beauty to it because it means that we, we deep down agree that we should be sharing a tradition. We just don't know what it is, right? And we have a vested interest in the right, the right tradition being the one that wins, right? So I think Ravuziel might even be okay with fighting, right? He likes peace, obviously, but his, his desire to see people believe that the ideal is unity, right? Not unity in the sense of peace, but uniformity, right? Like unified practice, might even override um, the value of peace and he might prefer the kicking and screaming. You know, um, he might, I, I can't put that, I can't say for sure, um, but, but there's definitely reason to believe that, you know, kicking and screaming is not always a bad thing. Um, it implies something beautiful, right? Which is that we acknowledge that we have a shared tradition and we care about which, right? What that shared tradition is rather than just being okay with having different traditions. Um, yeah, that's, so, you know, that's, that's my thought on it. It's, you know, it's a, and it takes a while to sort of get to that point, but, but I think the, the family mashal helps, right? Because again, siblings fighting about what we used to do at home, right? Are going to fight in a different way, but everyone understands the reason they're fighting is because they're siblings, right? And they had a shared home and that's why it matters to them, right? And they're, they're, it's specifically because they're unified, they're one, right, they're one family, that they're less likely to be okay with you do your thing, my, you do, I'll do my thing, right? And that there is a beauty there, even if it's cantankerous. Um, okay, do we have any other questions or are we I calling do. it for the series? Oh. I do. <laughs> okay, Nachum, yes, go. So in that family, and I'm not expecting that you'll go off on this. If there's fighting in the bigger family, there needs to be a certain dignity of purpose. And I cite a recent example of the Supreme Court of Israel declaring what it did about conversion. Longer saga, but there needs to be dignity in fighting as well. That I agree with. 
right? That I agree with. Meaning, right? There's fighting. I get maybe, the differences. I get the differences. Oh no, for sure. I agree with you. Fighting, fighting may imply something important, but there's still different ways to fight, right? You can disagree respectfully. You can disagree disrespectfully. I, I point taken, right? Um, yes. Last thing I, I just wanted to say is, you know, it's interesting in terms of the laity, because you know I'm old enough to be able to say that I had a struggle with the issue when I was going to go to Israel for a holiday as a diaspora Jew the first time, whether I was going to keep one day yantif, you know, or two days yantif, you know, and I knew the position you know, of Rav Soloveitchik. And I, you know, would refer to him generally as my Rebbe. Um, but it didn't, I knew it wasn't going to resonate with me, you know, to be in Israel and do Yisra Malacha on the second day. And I know the, you know, positions of, you know, the Shulchan Aruch and contemporary of Rav Moshe, you know, which suggests that you do two days. Um, and it was just one of those things that I had to identify for myself, really on to the limit of my knowledge, you know, what was more of a, a, the famed minority opinion of the Chacham state. So ideology comes into it. And you see in time, at least within what you're calling the modern Orthodox camp, um, this has definitely, you know, taken on more root. But that's an example of where ideology comes. You could identify any number of perhaps sociological reasons for today. I'm not talking about somebody owning real estate in Israel or he's going to return. Just, you know, you're there. So you do what in Rome the Romans do. Yeah, so, I look, I, I think you're definitely right. that certain questions, and this is definitely a... a <laughs> A paradigmatic example, the line between um, halachic community and ideological community um, are very much related, right? Because I think that people's views are, are often shaped, and I don't say this in a bad way. I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's a legitimate thing. I think that people tend to be influenced on this issue by um, overarching ideological concerns. Um, and yeah, I do think for that reason that there is a divide between the monorthodox community, which is probably more accepting of day or day and a half or whatever you want to call it positions than two days. Um, and probably part of it is, you know, there are definitely post game who are very explicit about that, meaning um, there are religious Zionist post game who say, well, you should keep one day because, yes, if you were a Ben Chutzlaretz, you would keep two days. But the second you step foot in Israel, you should never leave. And therefore, you are Israeli whether you like it or not. If you choose to leave later, that's because you're just evil, right? Meaning that's clearly a, uh, right, that's an ideologically tinged position, um, right? You know, but I, but, I do, but I do think at some level, you're right, that certain issues, there's more than halacha going on. There, there's ideology, and I don't think that it's necessarily bad. Ideology often does shape um, which halachic positions you know, um, I, I once heard Ray Linzer make the point that um, uh, in truth, right, most people on the halachic spectrum believe that ideology has a role in psaq, both on the extreme right 
or the right and on the left. It's only the center that denies it, right? Haredi poskim will always invoke ideology. They call it Das Torah, right? <laughs> and on the left, they're explicit as well, right? There is like a certain modern Orthodox centrist brisker view that, ideologi- I- I- that idealizes law as completely separate from ideology. Um, but the truth is that that's probably a minority position that falls between the two sides of the spectrum where ideology is much more integrated into PSOC itself, um, which was part of his argument that, that it should be that way, right? That it's sort of anomalous in the history of halachic thinking that, um, that ideology should not. Obviously, it's not the only determinant, but it is a factor um, and explicitly so. Um, and I think, I think at least descriptively, he's right. Whether prescriptively that means anything, I'm not going to weigh in here. But descriptively, I think he's definitely right that, you know, you open most Haredi to vote, ideology is explicitly invoked, right? And, you know, it's, this is not like a left-right divide. It's a left-right on one side versus the center, where, um, where certain, like, legal positivist purists in, uh, in have developed who believe that this is not the case, um, which may be right, may be wrong. You know, again, I, I'm not weighing in on it now, but, um, but I think it is a, uh, definitely a very well-trodden um, path to say that ideology should affect um, halachic decision-making. You know, I think, I think that it, descriptively that's compelling. You know, I, I, and again, I think, you know, anyone who accuses that person of doing that because they're modern, you, real, you have to realize that, again, it's the left and the right that do it. Meaning Haredi Post can do it just as much as people on the left. There are certain people who vision, envision halacha not like that. Right. And in the Haredi camp also, I mean, Chazanish very rarely does this, right? Chazanish is, is, is his sock is much more ideologically neutral um, in that sense. But, but I think he's an outlier in Haredi Psak, as far as I can tell. Um, he, again, he still might be right, but I don't think he's a majority. Um, but that's my impression. Thank um, you. I also want to thank you for just such a wonderful set of shurim that you've given. Um, I've studied the subject and it's really helped enlighten me. And I thank you so much. And hope to be in Thank touch you for your future. contributions. It's made it it's made it a lot more fun. And uh, you know, the more I'm challenged on things, the more I continue to think about these issues, which is good for me, right? These are the things that that challenge the way I think about Torah. So the more I'm pushed, the better, you know, the more I feel uh, you know, the more I feel like I'm understanding at least what I don't understand, and and the more I'm forced to stake out my own view of what what halacha is. Great. Well, I guess on that note, let's uh let's call it for the series. <laughs> Um, Evie, again, thank you for all your help these six weeks, and I'll turn it to you for announcements. Thank you so much. This was really a great series. We really, really, really thank you, uh, Rabbi Ziering. And uh, thank you also to everyone who joined us today, all your great comments, uh, everyone here on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our spring program tomorrow at 1 p.m. with a class on the world of doubt between human and divine, between law and reality with Rabbani Chimoni. That's tomorrow at 1 p.m. It will also be um, live streamed. Uh, in addition, we have many more classes happening now and always. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes.
or you can watch live at www.dresha.org live. And just to remind everyone that the classes are recorded and you can always go back and uh, watch um, older classes that were uh, recorded. So you can watch this whole series uh, again. Uh, and thanks again, Rabbi Zirin, for the opportunity to learn with you. I hope to um, be with you in class again in the future. And Looking I hope forward. to see everyone, uh, everyone else at uh, one of our upcoming classes here at Risha. Thank you, everyone. Hey, thank you. And again, remember, you're always free to reach out to me to follow with all questions. My email is on all the source sheets. So, so go back to those and, you know, feel free when you think about things to send me an email and we can continue this conversation um, even after the series is over. Okay. Have Wonderful. a good night, everyone. Thank you. Good, good night. Good night and good afternoon, everyone.